So I'm on a new laptop, <laughs> which is why I'm not going to eat for a couple of weeks. Um, and oh, I'm no. still getting, yeah, I'm still getting used to like all like the ins and outs. It's a, it's a MacBook pro. I, I love, I love Apple products cause I'm a corporate shill, but they're also incredibly <laughs> easy to use. And, um, I'm, I'm just getting used to everything. It's like the touchpad's so sensitive and I forgot what that was like. Cause my other MacBook that I, I also bought with my own money in high school, uh, oh, gosh. like 12 years old. So <laughs> like it, no, it still like, have USB ports. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's what I didn't. I had to buy this anyways because I needed something to carry with me, but I, I was really upset when I found out they don't make USB ports for these right now. That's like the one thing that you don't lose, and they're like, we could do without these. Who needs flash drives? Yeah, like, oh, fucking, Ugh, whatever. Hello, <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping that in just because I need to vent my frustrations about this stupid shit. I'm your host, <laughs> Diego Crespo. Welcome back to another episode of the Waffle Press Movie Hangouts. Again, I'm your host, Diego Crespo. Gene can't be here today. He's in a 50-car pileup. He's fine. He's just going to be gone for this week. He'll, I'm sure he'll be back soon. And um, he's very excited to talk about the Batman, which I believe we're going to have a very exciting guest on for. Uh, it is not Matt Reeves, but uh, fans of the show will, will, will recognize the name when, when he arrives. Um, let's see, Pat, what else? It? It's, <laughs> no, no. I, sh- I should bring Matt on and just like... I should just bring Matt on for this one because... <laughs> I, we were having a conversation off mic, uh, but first let me introduce our fantastic guest today, Abby Phelps. How are you, my friend? I'm doing okay. I'm really excited to be here uh, and and discuss both Kenneth Branagh and other works of cinema? Question mark. Cinema movies. You know, it's we we've been Twitter pals for so long, shooting the shit, uh, complaining about corporate productions that we don't need to spend too much time talking about, but I will bring up in a second, because at the beginning of these shows, we talk about what else we've been watching before we get into the big topics of today. So if you've seen the YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes thumbnail, we're talking about Kenneth Branagh and the Netflix Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which we will get to in a moment. Um, But Abby, what have you been watching recently? Anything exciting going on in the world of movies and television on your end that you really want to highlight? Yeah, so as far as 2022 releases, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, God help me, is the first thing I've seen. Um, but for older stuff, um, probably the best film I've seen recently is my girlfriend Natalie just introduced me to Petey Wheatstraw, um, which is Rudy Ray Moore's black exploitation comedy about the son-in-law of the devil, uh, who also was a stand-up comedian um, and does kung fu. And it's, it is something to behold. Uh, watching the the gayest man you've seen in your life play uh, a womanizing stand-up comedian who has the power of the devil in his cane is is it's 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 a vibe that you can't really describe you just have to experience um also just the fact that you can watch the budget draining away from the moment that it starts shooting and then like the final scene and they have like five dollars left is just really incredible stuff i i recommend the vinegar syndrome release of it highly for anyone who is wanting to check out some some good black exploitation stuff from that era yeah i i actually um apart from uh dolomite is my name which i really liked you know like that was my kind of big like introduction into the, the works of rudy ray moore so I, I need to check out more of his stuff and th- this one sounds kind of remarkable it, it is really something and it's only like 90 minutes too so time well spent oh fantastic um 
Something I saw recently that was also 90 Minutes was the Steven Soderbergh joint Kimmy starring Zoe Kravitz on HBO. Um, and it's, I mean, it's Steven Soderbergh. He really doesn't miss uh, apart from like the Panama Papers movie he did that even I didn't sit through. I already uh, have forgotten that existed. Good God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to his credit, because I, I love listening to him talk. Like if anything, if you don't even like his movies, listen to him talk about the process of movie making. It is completely de-romanticized, but he's like such a knowledgeable mind that it it's like, it feels like little master classes. But he was talking about that movie specifically recently and was like, yeah, you know, we make choices in there where the audience will know immediately where they're going to stand in the movie. And if they don't want to watch the rest of it, that's fine. And I was like, oh, that's pretty honest, you know, for a movie yeah. that's less than three years old. And um, yeah, Kimmy's really great, tight little claustrophobic thriller. Uh, until it stops getting claustrophobic and then it finds ways to still make you feel like it's claustrophobic anyways it has all the hallmarks of weird stuff that i don't really want to see in movies like oh social media is crazy and oh it's <laughs> it's a it's a covid movie and it's like i don't want to see this and it's like the one movie i've seen where i'm like no it's handled like not gracefully but appropriately and the stuff it's disgusting seems to be it, it, it thought was put into it it wasn't just buzzwords because it's really weird when movies just use buzzwords that kind of trend on social media and don't really have anything to do with the process of the movie they're making or any mm-hmm. of that stuff. Um, there's a couple other stuff I've seen. I, I just run down really quickly because I want to highlight uh, your, your opinions on some stuff we're going to talk about today. But uh, Big Bug by my boy Jean-Pierre Genet from Alien Resurrection fame. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> favorite Alien sequel. Um, it's his first movie in 13 years, and it's a huge disappointment. I will, be there. <laughs> oh, I will no. be there for whatever he makes for the rest of his life. I really, really hope he kind of finds something he's been missing for a while. I, I don't know what it is. I didn't hate it, but I, uh, I don't know. It, it's, I cannot recommend it to a single person. It's got some, some good stuff in there. The cast is really strong. Um, I've seen people call it like Dr. Seuss's Black Mirror episode, and that's kind of what it is. And I don't like Black Mirror, so like, uh, it it was a bummer. Uh, now, Abby, 13 years since his last feature, yeah. He the last movie he made, what was it? Oh, you know what? No, not 13, it's 10 years, excuse me, 10 years. He did the the prodigious young, young and prodigious T.S. Spivet. There's a, a title that rolls off your tongue. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's one of the last movies uh, hacked to death by the Weinsteins. So it's like, I don't know oh. how much is his fault on that one, but it's not great either. <laughs> are, are you familiar with his work? Uh, I have seen Amelie and gave up halfway through, and that is the extent to which I'm familiar. I've never done oh. Alien Resurrection either. Oh, okay. So I, I, I do want to revisit that one, and I do want to see Resurrection eventually. Um because like I'm sure there's some good stuff in in both of them, and if nothing else, you know, I I am always down to see a, a chestburster explode through someone's face. Because oh yeah, no be? no that's that's the best part of that movie. Um, yeah, his, I really love his work. City of Lost Children was like one of those first weird movies I discovered in high school. You know, when you first discover like movies that aren't made in America, and you're like, whoa, there's other ways to like do this, you know. So he's <laughs> always gonna have a special place in my heart, but I. I miss enjoying his movies all the way through. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be there for his wild swings, but I would like for him to hit something again at some point, is all I'm saying. 
Yeah, and eventually, if nothing else, you could probably talk yourself into thinking that one of the future ones is good. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Well, like, um, hey, compared to the last one, this this one's it's you know that's how that's how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> like in hindsight. Um, speaking of hindsight, uh, if I recall, Abby, you were also a fan of Guardians of the Galaxy two, and I say that like tepidly because I know <laughs> you're not you're generally not a fan of that franchise. Yeah, no, it, tep- tepidly is the word, um, but yeah, it, of of the MCU stuff I have seen, which is fucking 15 of them, God help me, that one is solidly in, like, the top two or three. Okay. Um, like, like, especially because, like, it's one of the only ones that actually has an understanding of how to use color, like, even kind of. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, the fact that there are actually hues on the screen that are varied and in a palette of sorts is, it will go a long way with me after almost 13 years of these things. Um and yeah, I think that a lot of the emotional stuff it hits really works in a way that most of these movies it just doesn't for me. So yeah, I, I'm not so much a fan of the first Guardians, but that one is is like solidly probably top two MCU for me. Okay. Where do you stand with James Gunn, the filmmaker? I understand his social media presence can be a little how do I put this? It it can be silly. Let's just say silly. <laughs> leave it, leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good word. Um honestly. The only films of his that I've seen are the two Guardians. I've not done Slither, which is on my list. I didn't bother with Suicide Squad. Um, so as far as like a grasp on him outside of Marvel, I don't really have one. And I am curious to learn more eventually, because like like I said, Slither especially is one that I, I want to get to at some point. Um, and I, I have heard that Peacemaker is supposed to be pretty good uh, for people who, who seem like they know what they're talking about. So I'll, I might check that out at some point. Yeah, so... Uh, if you listen to this podcast or you, you've you been following me on social media, you know, I was a big fan of Suicide Squad. I don't think it comes close to like his best stuff. Like I think Guardians 2 is his masterpiece. But I, I think I understand the criticisms people had with Suicide Squad or it was like, it felt more like a farce, like something he needed to get out of the system. And Gunn has like this very crass personality, sometimes a little too juvenile and like I totally get it. Um Peacemaker really caught me off guard and I'm not going to go too de- in depth into it in this podcast. I'll, by the time this episode goes up on the Patreon for free for everyone reading or for everyone listening, it'll be free for you to listen or check out my review of, of Peacemaker because uh, I, I was really, really impressed. I did not think I wanted to spend eight hours with uh, John Cena's character from that film <laughs> who, who does very good work in that movie, but is also very clearly like, the most extreme fascist version of Captain America. I was like, I don't, I don't know if I want to see that guy anymore. That was, he's good, but it's like, I don't, that's a, that's a terrible person. And <laughs> I think Gunn at his best really understands like character in a way, these kind of like, like uh, almost like everyone tries to be meta now and like, Oh, isn't this funny? Like the joke is doesn't work, but us explaining the joke makes it funny. And they're like, no, it doesn't. Like, I think Gunn gets to the heart of, like, these characters being kind of broken people, and he gets the chance to explore that in Peacemaker. And I have not stopped thinking about that final image of the season since I saw it on Thursday. I would really, 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 really recommend it to, like, everyone. And it's a fucking superhero show that doesn't require, like, knowledge of 50 other productions. Um, The cameos (laughs) aren't the point of it. You know what the setup is. You know what the characters want, its needs are. They can't give us that with Star Wars anymore. I know. It, it's just a good 
well-made show that feels very personal and i was completely caught off guard with it so thumbs up now because i've been talking too much already let's get into the netflix chainsaw massacre abby my friend where are you coming uh at this with uh in regards to your history with the original tobe hooper film yeah so the original film i when i first saw it i didn't get it because i was in college and i was watching it on a laptop and the disc was a library disc that was broken and kept skipping so i didn't actually watch the movie as a whole i watched the ending in like about two minute chunks separated by five minutes of me trying to get the disc to work so at the time uh it was not an ideal experience but then i revisited it a couple years later and was just like blown off my ass um seeing it as a whole for the first time i like was it's i i still don't understand how people in the 70s weren't literally dropping dead of terror watching that thing like you you look at the landscape before and after it and there's really like nothing like it in in mainstream horror that went big and i'm it's it's still so singular and just like raw and visceral and shocking in a way that is is really like lightning in a bottle which which is always is always going to be hard to like capture that energy in a sequel uh which is why hooper was very wise to with texas chase and massacre 2 just turn it into a complete like funhouse mirror reflection of reagan america and then i haven't watched any of the sequels and reboots since then so i can't say how they fit in but this one is very much what if we went the, the claim is anyway because it doesn't actually do this but the claim is what if we went back to the roots of the original but with a more politically conscious twist and as soon as you hear that you know you're in trouble and then you watch it and it's just everything you thought it would be for 80 minutes i, I watched this movie on a, on my cell phone which is all the dignity it deserves and it is two minutes shorter than the original texas chainsaw massacre and it feels about twice as long <laughs> uh and i just i just finished it like literally 50 minutes ago so it's still very fresh in my head uh what were your circumstances like with the texas chancellor massacre and the viewing of this movie um i saw it just on, on my regular television uh i I've, I've talked about my history with the original texas chainsaw massacre over on the the two-part retrospective discussing the tobe huber entries of this franchise with matt garingo so link down to that below um that Oh, let me ask you this. So when you did eventually like get on board with the original film too, did you understand where Tobe Hooper was coming from when he was like, oh no, I think it's a funny movie? Oh yeah. Like, okay. I mean, Leatherface for like being, you know, both menacing and full of pathos as he is, is also like a slapstick character for a, a good portion of that movie. Mm -hmm. um, and like even, you know, Franklin, like his, 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 his plight is really unfortunate and like, mean in a lot of ways but also his his character is pretty consistently funny the whole way through like you can it, it gets lost a bit in memories because it's so much of it is just that the overwhelming stink and horror but when you're actually revisiting it it always does surprise me that we're like hey yeah this is pretty funny i completely understand it i don't get it from the movie though you know what i'm saying i'm not saying it's not there it's just such like a visceral experience my body like rejects it you know <laughs> like it's totally there. Oh, absolutely. It's totally in the movie. I'm just like, ha, 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 Yeah. Ha. It's definitely not the foremost thing on your mind. It's like a thing where you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And then like 60 seconds later, you're just back to just like shaking in your seat. Yeah, yeah. And like even now, people still have this like, uh, it still has this reputation to people where it's like, oh, it's the most violent movie ever. And it's like, it's it's not. Now, it's very viscerally upsetting. And it's, it's done so with, like, incredible purpose. And, like, it, I think we could, we could all agree it's one of the best movies, like, just fucking ever, right? Like, oh, yeah. it, it just Absolutely. is. 
Um, it, it, you feel like all the anger and frustration that Hooper has, like he just wants to get out there and make a fucking movie. And he's angry about the state of things <laughs> and the way we make our food. And he's like, what if people were treated the same way? And it's like, it, it's all there. The movie it's, it's fucking brilliant. Uh, I, I like your, your, your extra bonus mention of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is also a, like a really interesting rejection of, of, of what sequels should be. And like the movie ends up making everyone involved with it crazy. Like it's, it's such a fascinating like career Toe Hooper had. Um, I think for me, the, the big problem with the other interpretations of, of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre stuff, the, the multiple remakes, legacy sequels, um, it, people just want to turn it into like a, a regular slasher franchise and they keep moving away from like the cannibalistic side of it. You know, it's like, Oh, we can like chop people's faces off and wear them over our faces, like, like masks, but cannibalism, that's a line too far to portray on film. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what the, what the, what's going on there. Um, not that I want to see cannibalism, but you know, I, I don't think it makes sense for this franchise. Uh, yeah. I, I think you might like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4. It's just so bizarre. Maybe like's the wrong word. It's a fascinating movie because it's not great. It's not very good, but there's like something conflicting within it. And do you know about the twist in that one? I do not. Uh, I, I, I don't. Do not look up anything. You're okay. either going to be like, this is, this is great. Or this is the stupidest thing ever, but it's also great. Like there's there's really no in between. <laughs> um, that's the one you should check out. Now I, everything else. I have a little interested in Next Generation too, just because Matthew McConaughey being a complete ham as a redneck serial killer is like nightly interesting to me. Like I could see him making that fun. Oh yeah, he's he's fucking wild in that movie. That is, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what you're envisioning with, with his character. Uh, now everything else I followed. I sorry, I, I don't care. I know there's some people trying to re- reclaim the the early 2000s ones because that's like our generation's nostalgia. You know, more power to you. Uh, not for me. <laughs> um, this film, it is incredibly stupid. It has every like fatal flaw regarding like social media buzzwords and producers clearly trying to like ape stuff from other franchises like it feels like the the texas chainsaw awakens at times a lot of it actually um there's a john wick style sequence where leatherface breaks down a wall of his house to like unsheath his chainsaw uh it has no idea what it wants to say politically at least in my opinion i don't think it did and and like it does definitely lean right at like i think accidentally but it it's just such a mess that I found myself pretty entertained. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And no, I, I mean, I can't be mad at it. It's it's so far removed from the first one that, like, it. I'm not even angry the way I would be if it were, like, tarnishing my memories of the original because, like, there's no connection, basically. Like, it's, it's oh, yeah. so stupid that, like, I, I can see that I don't like it at all, but I, I'm not, like, viscerally enraged at anyone who thinks that it's fun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, it's not like, um, I don't know, what, what's the movie that's done that? Like, I, I wouldn't even say Halloween Kills did that for me. Like, that's a, like a, a, a severely disappointing movie to me, but I definitely wasn't, like, angry about it. I know a lot of people were, and I, I, I get it. 
Um, I, don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's I think... plenty of franchise stuff to choose from. I, I guess we don't have to do a list. If you, you thought of one, you listening to this, you thought of one when yeah, I said it. <laughs> yeah. I think the whole thing with like slasher franchises that makes it a bit more compartmentalizable like that is like, there really never was like any idea of like an overarching continuity with these things. Like, you know, even the ones that are continuing stories, it's so scattershot and like put together after the fact, the actual continuity that it's so easy to just separate any ones that you don't like in your mind. Like it's different from something like, you know, the rise of Skywalker, where it's like purporting to be the culmination of a trilogy with a single story. At that point, you know, you can't just shrug it off as easily and be like, well, that's fine. I still have the other two. But with slashers, it's like, well, if I don't like this one, there's two sequels down the road that are like, okay, and I don't have to remember the previous one, so who gives a shit? Yeah, I was going to say Rise of Skywalker, and I was like, I better not bring that up again. So thank you for for actually <laughs> doing that, so I didn't have to. Um, of course. Uh, yeah, what a film. Um, like, okay, like another example is ha- Halloween sequels. Uh, the Halloween retrospective, like, almost, like, broke us when we did it. But, you know, I'll always have my love of Halloween 3. You know, like that's yeah. that's never going to change. Even Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which has gotten like crazy reclaimed over the last couple of years, uh, at least from film Twitter standards. Uh, film Twitter seems to be really gravitating to that one, maybe because it's no, shot yeah. on 16 millimeter. And I, I like that movie a lot, too. So that's not me driving anybody. <laughs> I was really <laughs> surprised by this Texas Chainsaw Massacre because I, I, I think this director is actually pretty good. Like, I, I think he can compose an image uh he does his best to like at least spice up the lighting like it doesn't to me it didn't look just like every other slasher now the writing is is beyond dumb as a doornail it is idiotic to an uh, an insurmountable degree it none of it makes any sense it was notoriously like like they they pulled off the original directors of this right because they, they were trying to make it something that it wasn't or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I, I guess that's like a weird trend with these sequels too, at least for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They'll hire like people who, who like have pitched an interesting vision and then the producers will eventually go, can't, can't just some teenagers show up in a bus to an abandoned house where Leatherface leather is hiding? Can't it just be that? <laughs> and it's like, this is kind of the ultimate version of that stupid pitch. Um, there's plenty of repulsive political shit in here. I was uh, flabbergasted when it started to try to be serious horror. And it was like, oh, Ellie, Elsie Fisher, the little girl from eighth grade, she's a survivor of a school shooting. And yeah. I was like, this is, this is thorny material you're playing with here. Just got to um, check that trauma off the list, make sure that one of our characters has that. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I saw your, your post about that where I was like yeah it's just checking off boxes and stuff you are absolutely correct mind you you are absolutely (laughs) impeccably correct I really just think I'm gonna keep an eye on this David Blue Garcia guy I I think he's a really good director because he got handed like the most dog shit project possible but they're like images that are staying in my mind like when the girl's trapped in the front seat of the car and Leatherface is in the rearview mirror like chopping off that dude's face and i was like this is at least like interesting to look at once in a while you know it is it is certainly not an ugly movie um which of course one could argue with the problem but it is yeah as yeah, far yeah. as like the hand behind the camera there's yeah there's some some decent coloring and lighting going on and also like you know even though i'm overwhelmingly negative on the movie as a whole 
and I don't think that the kills are at all in the spirit of the franchise. There are some, like, there's some good practical gore going on there, as far as, like, compound fractures and smashed-in heads are concerned. Yeah. Which is, which is always, you know, if I can't have it be good, I can at least have it be suitably disgusting for a little bit to look at. Uh, I almost wonder, I have no information on the behind-the-scenes or anything, so this is just, like, what it felt like watching the movie to me, but I almost wonder if like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, this originally had a bit more of a satirical bent and that got narrowed down because they wanted to play it straight. Because stuff like, I mean, I won't, I won't get into spoilers uh, in case people do want to see it. I pity you if that's the case. Uh, it's possibly better to do with yourself in the afternoon. But there's, there's, a, there's a certain moments of like half-assed subversion where I could see where like a movie could have been going full ball with it and actually like having some kind of like, you know, like, basically like nas a nasty commentary on the whole david gordon green halloween school of reboot that, that then just got completely watered down like producers were like no we're making this a, a spiritual follow-up like that keeps the film's like original film's legacy alive um i'd be really interested to see that version as it is it, it's funny that you talk about how politically incoherent this is because i think that my issue with it is uh where like new Candyman, i thought was very confused as to what it actually wanted to say this film it actually is pretty intelligible to understand its position on certain things. It's just that the position itself is stupid and like doesn't correspond to the real world at all. Um, but like, I will give it that as awful as the position is, it at least is an identifiable worldview. Whereas like something like Halloween Kills or New Candyman, you watch it and you're like, you you are saying these words that you found in the search engine optimization. I would love to hear what the movie actually thinks about those. Yeah. Uh, I, I liked it when they said evil dies tonight. <laughs> that's... And, and they said it a lot. So it's the best movie ever. Yeah. That, that's what the theme is. You just repeat it. You He's just have the characters talk know. about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. This, this movie's like, I, I was just really impressed with the filmmaking. I think that I, I was so caught off guard by like the occasional or the, the consistently really stupid writing in this. Um, there's a returning legacy character, which I initially, let me, let me also clarify, going into it this weekend, I did not actually expect to even want to see it. I had just seen some like mildly positive reviews from people like uh, uh, a silent Don on Letterboxd, who is a, a really great follow, frankly. And uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, pretty good guy. So go, go check them out. And uh, he was very positive on this movie. And I was like, oh, okay, that, that might be something. Um, you know, not, not that I always agree with the takes, but, you know, there, there was interesting writing on it. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll check it out. But I thought this movie looked like shit. And I, I, I thought it looked like atrocious. And most people seem to continue believing that it is atrocious. So I'm clearly on the, on, in the minority on this. Um, this has never happened before. <laughs> yeah. um, you also mentioned that you know, potentially the look of the film might be an issue because we were like talking about Texas Chains, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre as something that's like kind of ugly <laughs> and like it's very uh, aggressive. Like it's an uncomfortable film to like kind of settle into, but there's almost kind of like a beauty in how like almost abstract and violent it is. Like it, there's nothing else like it. And I know we, it's been the talk of, of film Twitter since the trailer dropped that like, you know, maybe we need something like that again, you know? We, we, need, we need a horror movie that can really look and act different. We don't need them to look with like, like with the modern sheen. They don't need that kind of the, that aesthetic, the desirable quality. They need to be undesirable almost, you know, 
which is why I think a lot of us gravitate to stuff like the original Blair Witch Project, which is like kind of the, another peak of that. You know, it's like if, if you made that in film school, your professor would be like, you know, it doesn't <laughs> you didn't really get the lighting right and whatever. It's like, no, look at what you created. It's like it's very purposeful art. It just doesn't adhere to like a, a specific acceptable quality with our mainstream production stuff. And so maybe that's just like the, the depressing end result of all franchise stuff. Like if it goes on long enough and gets big enough, it'll be like, I'll make it like acceptable to everyone. Cause that's, that's the, the point of, of these, these capitalist pigs, you know, they need to make as much money as possible and they need to keep trying to like bring in more viewers. But I, I challenge filmmakers out there to make something as ugly and reprehensible without being like morally reprehensible, I guess. <laughs> Or, or at least, like, don't don't hurt anybody along the way, I guess. Like, because, yeah, I, I think there's some very pointed uh, commentary, I guess I'll call it, in this film where it's like, uh, the, oh, the Confederate flag, you know, it reminds me of my family. I don't actually believe any of that stuff. And, like, that goes, like, uncriticized in the film. Yeah, that's the moment where I lost my shit where it's, like, the film is like Leatherface is morally justified in hunting down this whole party of, 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 of you know, a fair number of people of color among them and like a, a black main character because they didn't understand that it's heritage, not hate. And they literally killed this woman <laughs> through the power of the power of wokeness is like, boy, that that <laughs> is something it, it, it is certainly swinging for the fences. I will give it that. Um, you know, it, it's funny the the whole the whole gloss versus ugliness aspect is kind of there in the movie itself. Uh, you know, I, I I don't think that the movie is meta commentary on itself, but the degree to which you know the whole thing is these kids are coming in to gentrify the town and, and peel off the, the the dirty facade and like turn it into a metropolis is is kind of in terms of architecture the uh, add, it as it is to architecture as glossy filmmaking is the franchises and trying to like get the most number of people in and I don't think that was intentional but it is at least interesting to me that that is what is at the heart of this movie that is the glossier version of the the grainy ugly progenitor um from back in the day you're really going to like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4 uh, not not specifically because of, like there's no through line between the, the thematics of that but like the accidental um like what, what it's accidentally about, you know? I, I think there's a lot of that in, in the next generation as well, where it's like, it's not really about certain things the film ends up revealing it's about, but it, it also totally is because that director was clearly working through some feelings about <laughs> the franchise. Um, and, and maybe that's like, I don't know. I, I feel like there's a really good version of this movie without being married to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre name that's like yet to be made, you know? Something that could yeah. tackle like actual gentrification. Maybe, maybe also don't pin it on like the young teens responsible. Not that like the kids are all right or anything like that, but you know, this is kind of like a bold plan. And unless these kids are all like from incredibly wealthy Silicon Valley backgrounds, it doesn't really work. And it definitely doesn't work when one of them is the survivor of a school shooting. Yeah, which of course that's like that really gives away the game too, because like you know right away, oh, this is the designated protagonist because they're not going to give that background to someone who's going to be like unsympathetic. <laughs> like it is the the chips are played very obviously as to like which character is supposed to be our POV very quickly that way, yeah. um, which is which is probably not to the movie's strength so much. 
Um, I will say Elsie Fisher does good work here. Um, like, th they do not equip themselves badly. I would like to see more of this version of them, uh, you know, almost, what is this? It's four years since eighth grade now. God. Um, wow. <laughs> it just hit me too. So old. <laughs> I know. My back. Uh, I would I really like to see her in more horror stuff. Um, and uh, the actress who plays her sister, Sarah Yarkin, I, I thought was actually really good too. She was in my my beloved Happy Death Day franchise. I don't know if you're a fan of those. I need to see them still. They're like one of my big blind spots as far as recent horror goes. Okay, they're they're very clearly going for like a scream type thing, but with a little more like 2010s isms, I guess. But I I really like those movies, especially the first one. Um, I, I would happily recommend those in light of this one. So I, I am clearly much more positive on this movie, but I also have to like admit that it's, it is so fun. Like what I, like the enjoyment I got out of it isn't because of the film itself. It's because like, here's a movie that was produced basically without a single vision in mind other than profit. And then this director comes in and I thought he actually just kind of made it more enjoyable to watch. <laughs> The, the the most dog shit like it's still dog shit but it's like really entertaining dog shit i guess and um i gotta be honest i also like psychotically cackled at the amount of good guy with a gun stuff was in this and i was like oh absolutely <laughs> consider again considering the lc fisher character with the, the the school shooting survival trauma i was just like holy shit you, these people have no idea <laughs> No, don't like, you understand the only way to escape your trauma is to shoot in a different trauma yeah you know if everyone had guns the world would be perfect um God. it it is it is well but let's, let's, let's not picture. let's not forget though it's because of the feral hogs oh there's a fucking feral hog joke in this that was five like, minutes in that is that that was like that was my first big warning sign i was like oh no but I ended up enjoying it. Um, I, I told Matt Garingo to watch it. Like the moment oh, no. I finished it this morning, I was like, have you seen it yet? And I know he's going to be so mad. He's either going to be like, you know oh, yes. what? It's fun trash or he's going to be like, have a stroke. <laughs> so either way, there's going to be entertaining tweets about it. Oh yeah. Uh, the last thing I'll say about the feral hog thing is like, they, they didn't even get the gun right. He has an assault rifle later on, and that's the gun that you use on the feral hogs in the tweet. You don't use a sidearm on feral hogs. <laughs> yeah, see, that that's that's the type of schlock we're dealing with with here. Um, I totally understand people like Abby are coming from with this. Like, you're going to know pretty quickly whether or not it's going to work for you. Uh, and if you're like me and tend to like the garbage, uh, you'll be happy, I guess. I don't know. I, I wouldn't rush out to the theater to see it if it was only playing in theaters. Because I have Netflix, I'd be like, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed my, my 70 minutes of watching it. I guess there's a post-credit scene. I don't, I don't oh, care about there? that stuff anymore. I so skipped I, that I entirely. Yeah, uh, they tend not to matter. Again, another positive for the Peacemaker show. The post-credit scenes are just extra gags that didn't make the episode. Which is what they should be in the first place. Yeah, I mean... Like specifically, like our generation really grew up with it too, where it's like, who who didn't love watching Jackie Chan stunts in in the the end credits of his movies? Why isn't that in like every Marvel movie? It would make everyone like them so much more. Or like the Pixar thing, where it's like they made a whole fake gag reel just for the DVD, which was like a blast. 
yeah like it's just it's just fun <laughs> like have fun with movies it's not so fucking serious all the time that's a whole other conversation we could have <laughs> actually we could head into that conversation now i think if, if we're finished with the texas chainsaw massacre yeah i think so yeah um uh one thumbs down one mild thumbs up behind a, a safety barrier sign in case anyone else gets mad at me about this one <laughs> okay but the real topic of discussion today the real reason i asked abby to come on today is because we're kenneth Branagh gang kind of um how do we how, how do we go about this okay abby let's just go back into our, our individual histories with kenneth Branagh again how did you discover yeah. this man <laughs> Uh, so the way that I discovered Kenneth Branagh is the way that I think literally everyone in our generation did, which is seeing him as Professor Lockhart in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, where he was <laughs> yep, just yep. some guy to me at the time. Um, and like, he, he nailed the part. I was like, yep, that's Lockhart, but I didn't have any conception of like who Kenneth Branagh was. Um, and then I, when I was in, uh, when I was in college, um, as, as part of a Shakespeare and film class, the first film I watched for that class was Branagh's Henry V um which i immediately just was like holy shit this is phenomenal uh and i immediately went and watched his other shakespeare films you know much to do about nothing and hamlet uh i just went out and watched right away and since then i have almost by accident because like the shakespeare ones are the ones that i like really truly love um so i hadn't been like seeking him out for other stuff necessarily but i've seen i think he's he's done like i think 18 features and i've seen 13 of them um, and most recently, I just covered a bunch of them for this podcast. I hadn't seen yeah. several different ones, including, uh, you know, the big one that obviously is very dear to your heart, Thor. Um, so I went through and watched a, a bunch more of those. And yeah, I he is not someone whose work is always good uh, or even often good, but he has enthusiasm and panache and is a deeply, deeply a theater kid which are qualities that aren't seen much anymore and that everyone should have. Uh, so I'm always going to count myself a partisan of his, um, even if he never makes a movie that hits the high seat in the 90s again, because we just we just need more big hams in front of him behind the camera at the end of the day. So yeah. that's my like background with him. Okay, well, I mean, I, again, we're talking, Thor was only like a decade ago. So, you know, he's got, he's got a five-star banger right there. Everyone could agree with that. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> well, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Professor Lockhart, um, I had heard about his Frankenstein. I to this day I have not seen it. There's going to be a new 4K release that I'm holding out for. That's the only oh, reason I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, there, there's, there's that movie is one of the is, is, is it's one of those movies where it is either good or entertaining. Those are those are its two modes. Like there's. There's no not having a good time with Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein, uh, even when, even when quality is not at the forefront. Okay, yeah, because yeah, I mean, you, you said it perfectly. He just he's just a big old ham, you know. He he totally throws himself into like the theatricality of his productions, and he he's someone who uh, when when he speaks about his time directing behind the camera and stuff like that, that he will very openly say like you know sometimes I just don't have all the answers because uh, movie making isn't like a math equation there's no one correct answer it's really it's a collaborative effort and I, I think that's part of the reason I like his work so much too like I can always feel his love of like 
of, of creating with people like that really stems true and like all of this stuff even uh jack ryan shadow recruit you ever see that one <laughs> i did that was actually one of his first ones i saw because my dad was a big jack ryan fan so that was one of the one of the netflix dvds that came in a sleeve that we watched when i was like probably still in still in like college or even high school Ooh. Uh, you know, I, I remembered liking it more when I first saw it, when it came out, revisited it. So, well, it's no Thor. Let's just put it that way. And he gets to do a Russian accent, which is more than some movies can say. Yeah, but then he, he got to be in Tenet and he does the same thing, but better. So we have Tenet. <laughs> we don't need Jack Ryan anymore. That, that's um, true. That, that, yeah. that is very true. Yeah, he's like, I, I think he's really fucking good in Tenet. Um, but this oh, is a really podcast. Yeah, yeah. This is like, a podcast. Yeah, even as someone who's not a Tenet fan, I will never say no to Kenneth Branagh talking about strangling a guy with his own balls. <laughs> He's a great Bond villain in that. Like, sorry, Nolan beat you all to the punch, Broccoli's. Uh, let me let me think. What was the first Branagh like Shakespeare movie I saw? I'm pretty sure it was Much Ado About Nothing. Um, that was definitely a high school one, for sure. Uh, uh, and then um, Hamlet is my favorite Kenneth Branagh movie. I, th- I think Hamlet oh, yeah. is like a far and away like to his best movie. Um, it, it's an imperfect masterpiece, I would say. Like, it's definitely got like problems. It's like four fucking hours also, which is like, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I get I, people not like rushing out to recommend that. <laughs> I mean, I, that's one of those things where it's like as... As can the phrase it is to say, though, I really think that it is built upon its flaws in that it being the big sloppy Hamlet where literally everything is thrown in is why you watch that one. Like you don't watch you don't watch kind of Thrones Hamlet for a streamlined, like sensitive take of the material. You watch it because literally every actor who ever lived is going to be in it and he's going to be throwing everything into his performance, even if it doesn't work. And every single line attached to the play is going to be in it. And you have just had the most maximal Hamlet experience and will in your life once the credits have rolled. Yeah, I mean that—that's kind of what it is. It's like the maximum Shakespeare movie, you know. It's like—I mean, it's well, okay, it's that or Romeo plus Juliet, but that—that uh, that is obviously <laughs> going for a much more uh, modern remix of that. And um, I, from my recollection, you're also a Baz Luhrmann fan, right? Or at least oh like yeah, I, so. he he needs to direct Kenneth Branagh someday because boy, the two of them colliding that could power the United States for a good like three years in terms of the energy generated by those two that, in the same room. I can't believe I never even thought of that. That would be a perfect world. Like the energy you just described, we could use that to create the perfect human being. And if we can't dismantle America, then we could just have that energy become the president of the United States. And that would heal all wounds of every nation. Absolutely. The president of the United States, who just happens to be the child of a North, North Irishman and an Australian. Yeah, it's, oh my God, it's perfect. Well, it, they would have to make the movie in America then. So they, they could be from America and, and be a, a viable presidential candidate. Hey, I'm interested in Elvis biopic. It's in the air. Oh, there we go. There we go. Um, all right. So let's, let's talk about what makes a Kenneth Branagh movie. What, what, and we talked a little bit about like his the sheer joy of of the productions the excitement he gets from working with actors because he himself is obviously a big actor um something i've I've always uh found really interesting is that you can always kind of tell when directors direct themselves and act in or or uh, actors at least direct themselves like uh sylvester stallone 
who, you know, has some really great performances. Uh, and then he's also in Cliffhanger, which he co-wrote <laughs> and stars in. A movie I enjoy, but it goes like, it bends over backwards to be like, man, this is the coolest fucking guy on the planet. Don't fuck with him. He's so fucking badass and everyone wants to fuck him or kill him. And it's like, this is ridiculous. I've never gotten that with Kenneth Branagh. Have you? I, all, somewhat, but not necessarily in a bad way. I think that like, it's notable that probably his best performance ever is in the only Shakespeare film in his 90s run that he didn't direct, uh, which is his Iago and Othello by Oliver Parker. <laughs> I think that that is, that is far and away his best performance. But I think that when he's, he's a little more off the leash in his own stuff, but it's not to the movie's detriment because the whole movie is at that octave, right? Like mm-hmm. the whole thing is just the like, enthused with this directorial joy at doing what he's doing. And so even when when he's he's heightened to an extent that he might not be if another director had the material, it, it doesn't read as egotism so much to me as a guy who's like, I get to be doing this with my life. This is insane. I'm, I'm doing Shakespeare in front of a camera with a huge company of actors. This is the best. So it's never been a thing where like, even, even if I can detect differences in his performance with himself versus others, it's not a thing where I walk away thinking and that he's worse off for it. I think that honestly, he's, it, it's part of what makes his movies his movies. Yeah, I, I really think that stems from also like his, his just sheer love of, Shakespeare, like you're mentioning, um, like in, in the notes, I just put, I didn't know what to put about it. I was just like, is Shakespeare based? To which I would say yes. <laughs> um, uh, I, I've had a lot of, oddly, a lot of conversations recently on, on the film Twitter sphere about like, oh, is Shakespeare boring or not? And I'm like, no, Shakespeare's fucking so much fun. What are you talking about? And then I guess I, I never thought about phrasing it differently, but um, I even forget who like kind of in a way corrected me on it. But like I, Shakespeare, when you're reading it, is a different feeling than when you're reading it like with people aloud and like playing with it, you know, to finding like the rhythms of the dialogue and like uh, the specific cadences. And, you know, so Shakespeare, unfortunately, like a lot of older artworks, um, is kind of seen as like highbrow, like, oh, you read Shakespeare, like you fucking pretentious asshole. It's like, dude, if you read Shakespeare, <laughs> like it's, it's not like, I mean, it is, it is art. But it's not like some mind-boggling, uh, otherworldly entity. Like it's it's fun. A lot of it is really fun to read. You know. Yeah, and I think that that is honestly Branagh's greatest strength as far as a Shakespearean director. You know, he's not he's not the most insightful in the material. He's not the best craftsman with filmmaking. You know, he's not a Wells. He's not a, a Kurosawa. But what he brings is such passion for making the material accessible and showing the energy behind it and the momentum and the excitement. And I think especially if you're a young person, that translates really well because you can just see in in everything in the film, both in his behind the camera and in front of the camera, how much he loves doing this and how much he wants to make it clear how relevant this is to you and how exciting it can be. And I think that that's probably the most valuable thing about him at the end of the day is that he never loses sight of the fact that Shakespeare is exhilarating. Um, and I think that, you know, even though he might have what some would term, you know, a sophomoric or basic approach to certain elements. That's why he's endured as long, you know, because his, his adaptations at this point are, some of them are over 30 years old. And the fact that they're still used in, in classrooms and, and, and beginner Shakespeare settings around the world is that they have that, that passion for showing him to you as something new and vital that I think is really important. Yeah, that's, that's wonderfully said. It's, it can be really fun to just like get into it, you know, I, uh, it's going to be like the dorkiest thing ever, but like, I would love to, to hang out with like a group of friends and just like, just 
do Romeo and Juliet or something like that, which I, oh, yeah. I think hasn't had a, a great adaptation in a while, unfortunately. But um, so Kenneth Kevin could do that. I think he could do it. He might age him up or something, but. Yeah, I'm just like, at this point, every time he makes a new movie, I'm like, okay, Hollywood, let him do Shakespeare again. And he still has it. It's like, if making Artemis Fowl isn't getting, giving him enough Disney credit for them to fund his Macbeth or whatever, I don't know what will. Like, come on, guys. Let it, let him let him do what he loves again. I'm super curious about that, too, because, like, like, Disney, like, putting out West Side Story in, in the way that it was, it was kind of like a miracle. Like, it's not a risque movie at all. But for their kind of brand, you know, I just remember them being conversations about like, yeah, they're not, they don't really want smoking in this version. Um, you know, we don't want it too violent. Like we still want it to be accessible. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, it's a tragedy. Why is that even a point of contention? Um, maybe uh, I know Warner Brothers is trying to appease like filmmakers going to be like, no, 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 we're, we're filmmaker friendly because uh, they lost Christopher Nolan. So they have to like kind of work with everyone and play nice. Um, yeah. And Universal, uh, has, Shyamalan's been like really banging the drum that like, no, these guys are the guys. These are these are the boys over here. So maybe Brana works with one of those two to make another Shakespeare adaptation. Honestly, he should just pull a Shyamalan and self-fund it. Because like, I think, you know, the most expensive movie of his 90s run of Shakespeare stuff was Hamlet. And that was 15 million to make. That was not nearly as expensive as you would think it is watching it. Like he could, you know, especially if it's a Shakespeare play, like with a smaller scale, he could he could totally just, you know, if nothing else, just take his own money and put it into it. Um, and you know, obviously he keeps up with the stage stuff. Like he's directed a bunch of Shakespeare productions for the stage. But I, I really do hope we get some late period Brana Shakespeare because I think that he has a lot to give us still there. Um, and I, I hope that he finds a way to pull that off. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. A Sha- pull pull a Shyamalan, pull a, pull a Coppola who's doing his his bajillion dollar megalopolis finally um yeah, yeah all so, you have to do is sell wine kenneth yeah i'd I buy kenneth Brunner wine that dude apparently could drink so <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm there for 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 you kenneth uh, just let me know i'll i'll start the gofundme um uh let's see what else okay so why is thor his best movie I'll let you go first on that one. This is your thing. This no, is... no, it's totally not his best movie. I really do think Hamlet is like his masterpiece. And he's done plenty of better movies than Thor. I, I would even say uh, his Cinderella movie is better than Thor. I really like his Cinderella. I don't know where you stand on that one. Um, That's one of the ones I have to see. I the, the ones of his I have not seen yet are Cinderella, Artemis Fowl, Death on the Nile, and then Love's Labor is Lost and... Uh, as you like it, the ones that I've yet to get to. But I, I am curious to do with Cinderella because, like, I think that's one of only, like, three Disney remakes that actually were remakes before they decided, let's just do the original again, but with photoreal effects and make a billion dollars. Yeah, the just from the trailers alone, the sheer difference of having someone who at least knows how to use a camera like Kenneth Branagh versus the people that made Cruella perhaps no no offense to our beloved Emma Stone <laughs> who who is a, a wonderful angel actress who deserves the world get that money but yeah get that bag um get that sequel bag too because that was during the the the, uh, the Scarlett Johansson controversies or whatever <laughs> and and so all the actors were like all right up our price we'll shut up <laughs> um anyways not the point uh yeah Cinderella's I I think is really wonderful uh you don't really need to watch artemis fowl i will i will not 
I, I don't think there's anything there to talk about. <laughs> no, I've only got a half watch it, but like I'm a completionist at this point. Like I've okay. seen like at this point, I've seen his least watched movie on Letterboxd. So I'm like, I have to now. If I've oh, seen which, that. Which one oh, is that? Uh, a Midwinter's Tale slash In the Bleak Midwinter, depending on the market. It had two titles. Um, okay. That one, that one is fascinating. Uh, it was... Uh, I believe it was between Frankenstein and uh, it was either either between Much Ado and Frank and Frankenstein or between Frankenstein and Hamlet when that came out, and it is a Shakespeare film uh, in the periphery. It it is not the Shakespeare adaptation, uh, but it casts. I'm I'm forgetting the name of the guy. Uh, with the, the one of one of brought out Shakespeare's stable. You know, he's the Dauphin in Henry V. He's Laertes in Hamlet. Uh, he's in the fellow too um but that actor he's playing like the Bronos stand-in who's this megalomaniacal actor trying to direct a production of hamlet for christmas at this at this little church and working with all these all these like eccentric actors um so it's it's this just this behind the scenes comedy where Bronos takes a lot of shots at himself and it's also just like a heartwarming little christmas movie Aww. it's it's never been on anything but dvd like it's it's i don't think it's gotten a pro i don't know if the dvd is even in print anymore but it's just I wish it were well more known than it is, more well known than it is, because it's so much fun to watch. Yeah. Also, that... he's black and white too. Oh fuck yeah! Okay, because uh, he's someone who clearly likes playing with like black and white, and you know that's something else that seems to have like a oh you like movies in black and white, you pretentious pompous, and it's like no, nah, it's just a format like for the medium. It's not nothing special. I think some artists think they're making something special when they use black and white all the time. You know, I've seen Malcolm and Marie. And, uh, oh yeah, you know. And I will say, I think that I think that I I I think that it's pretty good digital black and white. I do think that Belfast falls victim to that a little. Um, as I far as seen like Belfast yet, I, I'm it is, concerned. It, it is perfectly charming. Like it is okay. completely it is completely mediocre, and like it's it is a movie about a political time period, and like nothing. It has no political viewpoints of its own, but it's mm -hmm. charming. It's like your grandma's favorite movie, basically. Oh okay, yeah, I love my grandma, so that's fine. Yeah, and like if he gets an Oscar for it, you know, it, it's Kenneth. I'm not going to be mad. Yeah. Um, why not? Because no, I mean, I think everyone kind of noticed. I was like, this is, it looks like a, another type of like Roma run, you know, to the Oscars, like easy Oscar bag, black and white, personal story about their, the director's coming of age. And as much as I love uh, my boy Alfonso Cuaron, I uh, did not love that one. So yeah. well, I, I'm, I'm I just a little saying... like trepidatious, I guess. Yeah, I think the saving grace of Belfast, like even considering that I don't think it's a good movie, is that because it's Brana, he knows he's making a crowd pleaser and he never has ambitions beyond that. Whereas Roma is very much, you know, trying to elevate itself above what it's doing. Um, so I think that like Belfast's lack of pretensions make it impossible to like dislike, even if you don't think it's good. Okay. So yeah, it's definitely an easy watch. I think that you're 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 not going to have a bad time with it, regardless of how you end up feeling about it. Okay. That that's that gives me hope. Um, all right, so Thor. Before before I get to that, I should also mention that I haven't seen Death in the Nile either, which was also shot in sixty five millimeter. I think that's his preferred format at this point. I mean, um, you need it for all the champagne. For, you, know, the, you you need to capture all the champagne going into the Nile. Ha ha ha. Uh, which you know is, is a movie with the second most canceled cast of all time. The first is the film Outbreak. If you're not familiar with the film Outbreak from nineteen eighty five, I believe. Give it a no, quick I'm Google. not. Oh my God. Okay, you know what? I'll just tell you then. <laughs> Dustin Please. Hoffman, Morgan Freeman, Kevin Spacey, Cuba Gooding Jr. Like, it's just like nonstop. Oh no. It is so funny. Um, 
it's a pretty entertaining movie, but like it's the most canceled snow of all time. And that's just very funny to me. Thor. Thor is not canceled though. Thor, I think. I mean, here's the thing. I think most people can at least agree Thor feels like a real film, not just because it was shot on film, but like the production design of it. Um, at the time, it was criticized for feeling a little too empty and hollow. And it's like, give it a couple of years, this will feel like fucking, you know, like Lawrence of Arabia. Um, yeah, like like just those that that Twitter thread of like the gifs comparing the Bifrost in in this one and Ragnarok is just. I even as someone who had seen lots of clips from Ragnarok, I had not realized the depths to which it could just desaturate everything. Like it's yeah. so sad to watch. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I like things, but um, I did not like the second Thor. I like Ragnarok. I think it's still a really entertaining like ride of a movie for like if you like the Marvel stuff, there's probably no reason why you wouldn't like that one. If you don't, you know, don't bother. But it is like inexcusable that these movies are getting more expensive and Thor still looks like breathtaking compared to them. Like, I really love the look of like the Asgard sky. I love the fantasy elements, even though they're really more sprinkled into the first Thor. I think it, it's got this nice sense of a uh, character, not just for Thor, but um, I think Asgard has like a personality in that one, even if it is just like a lot of hallways and throne rooms and, and backdoor meetings. Like, I don't know, there, there's really something to that movie that I, I find very appealing and like aesthetically pleasing uh and it's also like maybe the the one superhero movie that they've done in so long that um the point of the of the climax isn't to just punch the bad guy away i know that's like kind of like a a hallowed criticism at this point but thor has to learn not to be aggressive and fight and i just find that like really compelling because you know superheroes like in their cinematic form right now tend to be cops a lot of the time like it's very rare to find one that's like not like even peacemaker the show seems to be wrestling with that which is why i find it so interesting but you know that that is the point of peacemaker he's a fascist and he has to kind of get introspective thor i i thought kind of did all this a lot sooner <laughs> and it's yeah, like and, what, then, what? and then i haven't like actually seen infinity war or endgame because i was not going to go see those but like isn't like his whole plot then in infinity war like I'm going to build a big axe because like they just didn't get it. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's something I really loved from Ragnarok is that he has to rediscover again. Like, all right, who are you without this? Like you, you can be great as a person or as guardian or whatever um, without like th this warrior fatigue, basically, like you can be a great man. And then it's like, Oh, he's, yeah, you got to have sequels. And we don't really know what to do without the, the, fucking axe or hammer so let's just give him another one it's like no <laughs> it's there's there's so much stuff to do there and i really do wish kenneth Branagh stuck around but i don't think it's a secret that directors with like actual artistic integrity don't like sticking around those productions anyways so yeah it's, it's just so wild that he's like no yeah they tried to undutch my angles into my delight they couldn't like yeah and like that was considered radical like what yeah. world are we living in and like it's the majority of the Dutch movies. angles are in New Mexico, which is like the part of the movie where it looks like any other Marvel movie where it's like gray and there's not really any color. And even then they were like, wait, the camera is tilting 30 degrees. That's crazy. We need to stabilize this. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. But I, I love Kenneth Branagh's work on that movie. Um, I I really do wish he would do another. He doesn't need to. I would rather much have him do uh, uh, another Shakespeare play. 
But if they're going to keep making Marvel stuff, and if, if they're hiring Sam Raimi at this point, it's like, yeah, go for the fucking, like, if we have to put up with this shit, like, go for the fucking, like, heavy hitters, you know? Like, yeah. And, like, I will say, even as someone who's not positive on Thor overall, I think the one thing that I appreciate that Brana brings to it, specifically with Hiddleston and Hopkins, is, like, crafting actual performances in distinct characters. And with Hopkins, you know, you can, Hopkins always brings it regardless of the role. So it's, it's less noticeable on him, but Hiddleston, who I had only seen in MCU stuff as like, you know, basically just this, you know, this sardonic, wisecracking, like smarmy person who's the same as any of these other fucking people. You you watch him in Thor and it's like, there's a real vulnerability there and a real like tragedy in terms of like what Branagh brings out of the material. Even And even as someone who wishes there were more of that in the film, you can see these dimensions there where it's like, people aren't even attempting that anymore. And it's it's really noticeable watching these performers interact with someone who actually understands performance and has done a lot of it himself versus you know people who are basically just glorified assistant directors who the producers know okay we're going to slot you in we're going to have the second unit take everything else under their control it'll be fine yeah he he gives them room for the performances that's like such a key thing and uh, uh i believe don't hold me to do this but i believe hiddleston's performance in that is what kind of made them decide okay we're going to do loki for the first avengers movie and it's like, that's, you know, that's not a bad way to go about it. You know, it's like, okay, you recognize <laughs> talent. Let's highlight it. That's, you know, movie making 101. Um, uh, my, my last little favorite detail before we wrap up on Thor. Uh, I love in, in the moment when Thor is about to get banned from Asgard and Loki's like, father, please. And, and <laughs> Anthony Hopkins just goes, <laughs> like, <laughs> that would fuck me up for life if Anthony Hopkins <laughs> ever did that to me. So the fact that Loki didn't lose his mind immediately, it's like, okay, so he's made of something, you know? Meanwhile, when Loki yells at him, it's, I need to go into a coma now. I'm very I, upset about this. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's comic booky, I guess I'll say. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little loosely written. Again, honestly, it's really the, no, the character honestly, stuff I like. Them calling it the Odin sleep saves it. Like, at that point, it, like, wraps back around to, okay, this is camp. Like... <laughs> That, that that's that's incredible mm-hmm. um yeah no yeah i it, it'd be nice if he were ever given like a big swing of something like this again I, I i definitely like i said i would prefer to see him do shakespeare but i certainly wouldn't say no if like you know fuck it, give him a star wars movie star wars is kind of shakespearean honestly or it should yeah be anyway. yeah uh i don't think i've mentioned this like publicly but i, I was having a conversation with some friends and i was like Kenneth Branagh could have probably done episode nine, not with that script, but like he could have made like a version of that movie that would have been good, you know? Yeah, like he's, I, I think that he and Star Wars are on a very similar wavelength as far as like the the way that I described him in a, in a review of one of his movies, and I watched the run up to this, is transcendent clumsiness, where it's <laughs> like any any moments where where the craft isn't quite there are covered over by like just how how much emotion he's and kineticism he's bringing to it and like that's perfect for star wars and also is you know what worked for jj in the force awakens and then sort of just wasn't there in in rise uh because there they still had the clumsiness but the enthusiasm wasn't there and i feel like bronog would have probably brought that um in a place where jj just couldn't quite summon it up for that one yeah yeah it's a shame but uh let's end on a positive note and then we'll wrap up dead again yes 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 now I believe we both saw this for the first time recently. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? 
then again, it is, it's not my favorite Brana. That's still probably Hamlet or Henry V. Uh, but it is Brana at the height of his powers as far as, like, I think if you made that movie any better, like, if you had, like, someone like De Palma behind it, which a lot of people have pointed out, they've said, you know, oh, it's like if De Palma got hit on his head. I think that if you had, a, had a, like, a, a more assured craftsman behind it, it wouldn't be as good. Because it's just this this ridiculous schlock, like, pulp opera and he's just selling the hell out of it and like every performance is up to 11 the script is ludicrous like like the the use of like slow motion and sweeping camera it's just it's this perfect fusion of everyone doing the most coming together and just like this heightened farce that is so fucking compelling to watch yeah it's so much fucking fun i knew i was in love with it i I did love it by the way um but i knew i was in love with it when it, it opens up with that flashback uh, Kenneth Branagh's walking to his execution and he's hitting the, the scissors from his haircut and then Andy Garcia's like stop him stop him and then the camera like swoops up and highlights the lights highlight his face and Kenneth Branagh's like like uh, what did he say like it's for you and then he plunges the, the scissors into the person's chest and then we cut back to the present and it's like whoa okay I better buckle up if that's the movie I'm in for because uh, wow it, it is it is so fucking campy and it is so much fucking fun. And I agree, like, yeah, Brian De Palma, it would have been different. It, it would have been too different. I, I think there's a, there's a different type of playfulness with this one. It also doesn't feel like dirty, like De Palma, not to that degree anyways, not the scuzzy degree. Um, there's, there's a little bit of that there, but like, I don't know, uh, maybe Brian De Palma might've taken it too far, you know, because at that point in Brian De Palma's career is kind of, we're starting to see the trail off in quality. That's all I'll say. But um, yeah, I mean, I love Femme Fatale in 2002. But yeah, I know yeah. for for sure. And yeah. I think that like this still manages to have a fair degree of like, I'm not going to say transgression, but like, holy shit, the amount of gender shit going on in this movie <laughs> is 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 quite a lot. Um, and like, I think the th- that it is like you know the the the, the accessible approachable version of De Palma means that when the wild stuff hits I think that it hits harder because you're just unprepared for the wild like just turn this thing is taking when it's so like gormless about how it presents itself um yeah I think that I think that only he could have done that movie the way that he did it and have it work Mm -hmm. um and yeah I I love it a whole lot um a movie of his that is is nowhere near as good as that again, but has similar vibes. I just watched last night with Natalie Sleuth. Um, his 2007 two-hander with Jude Law and Michael Caine. That's right. Not a good movie, but boy, the the energy being brought there is a very similar energy. And it's like, this is a movie that I'm only watching because Bronon made it because only he would have brought this specific kind of just like live wire nuts that the material has. Um, yeah, I just I just love him going for oddball stuff and just like doing it completely earnestly because it it just sucks you in in a way that like you're the whole time you're watching Dead Again you're just on the edge of your seat like okay where is this gonna end up where where how could he possibly take this any higher <laughs> and and somehow he fucking does it uh, for to the gender thing too like I I was uh, I I love this little like match cut between Kenneth Branagh like when he first goes to the, the hypnotherapist and he's talking, he's describing what he's seeing. And then it cuts to Emma Thompson or like, no, no, no. Before it even cuts, Emma Thompson's voice comes out of Kenneth Branagh's mouth for like a couple seconds. And then they cut to her 
And I was just like, oh, <laughs> Verano's working on some next level stuff right here. I, I had a great fucking time discovering this movie. Everyone check it out, by the way. It's on HBO Max. Um, this is another one I, I feel like I actually don't want to spoil for people because I feel like it's a very understood oh, yeah, Verano. Sure. Uh, it's a hoot. If you like Kenneth Branagh movies, you, you, you gotta see it. If you don't, you kind of have to see it anyways because it's it's a wild ride and it, it's so, I think it's great. I think it's a great time. Yeah, one of his best casts too. Oh yeah, I didn't know Wayne Knight and Robin Williams were in it. So I was like, <gasps> you know. Like, well, and William, William specifically requested that his name not appear in the credits because he was like, if my name's there, people will think it's a comedy. Um, so just leave me off. Oh. Um, so then you just get the delightful surprise of, hey, Robin Williams, ex-psychiatrist turned meatpacker is here. Yeah, like why, what a weird like, character decision, but I love it, you know? Um, yeah, Kenneth Branagh. Uh, I, I, I think that kind of wraps it up for us, unless you have anything else you, you want to highlight about our boy. You know, yeah, just I, I'm really hoping that this new like wave of successes for him between the Poirot stuff and Belfast now possibly, you know, getting him gold finally. I'm really hoping that that results in like a springboard where he can do more of the stuff that he really wants to do instead of like going back and doing Artemis Fowl for the rest of his life. Like I, I think that when he's given freedom the way that he was in the nineties in a way that like basically never would have happened again. I think that that's one thing we, we didn't touch on that's like really valuable to note is like, Branagh's 90s run is pretty unprecedented and like will never happen again as far as we're just giving the keys to this immense amount of casting talent to this young upstart who's going to shoot them in whatever he wants for Shakespeare for like close to a decade. That's something that really isn't going to happen anymore and I really hope that he finds a way to like still bring a version of it back because I think that in general you know artists having that kind of freedom is great for the medium uh but especially when they have that sort of freedom to introduce the past to a new generation i think is so important and i really want him to have the chance to do it again while he still has time because no one else has the enthusiasm for it that he has and i think that he still has lots of that to give beautifully said thank you so much abby for for joining me today and uh where can the people find you anything you want to plug anything you want to highlight yeah, uh, I'm at Good Hunter Abbey on on Twitter. I don't have like too many public facing things running right now as far as like projects go, but I'm also on Letterboxd. I, I make podcast appearances like this one. Uh, you know, me and Natalie and sometimes Carol Grant and Esther will will stream video games sometimes, and that's always a good time. But yeah, otherwise, if you just want to see me bitch about movies and books and other things, sometimes uh, Twitter is where you'll find me. Uh, by the way, those streams are delightful. I'll have to put a link down Aww. below. At least uh, uh, I, I've only seen all of you on Carol's. Is uh, is there more I should highlight? Uh, no, yeah. So Carol and I just did our Resident Evil 5 playthrough. We'll occasionally stream like Apex Legends or Splitgate together with her and me and Esther and Natalie. And uh, as far as streams without Carol's involvement, right now I am, I'm shepherding Natalie through her first time playing Bloodborne. Um, and she's about halfway through that now. So... So okay, yeah, those okay. are always I'll, a good time. I'll put links down to, to those below. Uh, again, thank you so much. It, it was a blast to talk to you over over uh, over a podcast for the first time. And uh, our, our film Twitter friendship ha has been a delight, especially in the, the insanity that these last few years have offered us. So thank you so <laughs> much again. And for everyone else, again, you can check out the, the Peacemaker written review I did uh, the moment this episode goes up. 
on Patreon for free. Feel free to donate to that. And you can also find links to this episode on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and Patreon again. Uh, get some early access to stuff. Is, is the Book of Henry out yet? It should be at this point. If it's not, it will, it will be shortly after this. So uh, keep a, an eye out for failed awards contenders. Uh, I'll be back on this Hangouts to talk about the Batman because yeah. ev- everyone likes those comic book movies. Um, this one happens to be directed by another real filmmaker, though, so we're excited about that. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for watching. We have been professionally unprofessional.